Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Stephen Ramirez, Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer with Renown Health. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. Steve, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. All right, very good. Do you want to start off, tell me about a little bit about your organization and your role? Yes, uh, my name's Stephen Ramirez again, and I'm the uh, Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at Renown Health. I've been at Renown for about 10 months now, um, today actually. Um, it is a um, system up in Reno, Nevada. It's the area trauma um, center. So any of you bad skiers that have been out there, um, you know, definitely come see us. Um, <laughs> so it does have a dedicated children cancer center and um, a new affiliation with University of Nevada, Reno, UNR. Um, so that partnership is really going to enable us to start getting cutting edge research, innovation, et cetera. And they have been the biggest player um, in the market um, for quite some time, um, serving Northern Nevada for um, quite a while. So, Very good. Can you tell us a little bit about your career journey? I'd like to find out how CISOs in healthcare wound up where they are. Uh, yes, it actually started up at Georgetown um, up in Washington, D.C. Um, and right as a lot of the digital transformation components were going on, I was the, um, quote, Millennial, so they threw a lot of the IT risk management and some of that at me um, since I had the only Facebook account in the office, and it really the rest was history. Went from there on to CHI, um, right as CHI was really in acquisition mode. Um, CHI is now Common Spirit, so um, was part of the merger and acquisition team. So really saw that footprint grow um, to 19 states, you know, over 100 hospitals into what it is today with um, Common Spirit and that merger with Dignity. Um, then went over to Short Senate Baptist Health in Louisville, Kentucky, um, and then went to the vendor side. So got to see um, what the other side of the aisle was doing, um, you know, really encompassing payer and provider. Worked at McKesson um, on the medical imaging side. So got to do a lot of IT risk management, cybersecurity advisory work, also looking at continuity and redundancy for medical imaging system. And that's really where a lot of the Medical imaging security um, really was starting to come to the forefront associated with that, and then went on to IBM on the Watson Health side, working on the Medicare Medicaid side, and was a appointed CMS security officer as part of that. So I got to go through um, and do that whole fun um, stuff on the NIST 853 um, and going through the ARS controls that CMS has, as well as the ATO, the authority to operate on, you know, onboarding any of their systems. So it really has helped me get a strong background into that. Um, I then went over to UofL Health, um, right as they were doing an acquisition of Jewish um, in that system in the Louisville, Kentucky market. So that was about 15,000 employees, nine sites here in the Louisville, Kentucky area, and then came to join Chuck out in Renown. <laughs> so really through and through on healthcare. Both my parents are providers. So like to say from cradle to hopefully a future down the straight grave, been in healthcare um, through and through. Um, so yeah, there's there's the story of me. And for those who may not be aware, Chuck is Chuck Podesta, who I mentioned is a good friend of mine and now you're working with him. So we'll get more into that a little more later in the interview. When I looked at your LinkedIn profile, you talked about your career path. I noticed a number of those positions had a strong emphasis on business continuity planning and disaster recovery. To me, that is one of the most important areas right now where CISOs have to be playing, focusing, and spending their time. So what do you think are a couple of the keys to getting that right and the right way to approach that for CISOs? 
Uh, yeah, that was great on really because you're planning for the worst case or the what ifs with a lot of that. Um, so that was, you know, enabled me to really work backwards that, you know, we're looking at these critical process assets, technologies, you know, people process technology, a lot of stuff that we do look at from a CISO perspective um, associated with that. So I think that is critical. We've seen, especially with healthcare, that it's almost seems like every other week that there's another health system being impacted by that. And really that puts the emphasis on, you know, we're so dependent on IT systems as a health system, as a healthcare community, um, that we do have to have that cyber resilience state of mind, um, that if uh, our systems go down, how are we able to get them back up as quickly as possible, but also maintain operations just because there's an impact to IT. We can't say, sorry, guys, um, you know, we're closing, you know, being a healthcare provider. So really, you know, having to ensure that we are providing quality, safe care through the um, full life cycle of a patient being, you know, at our facility. So again, that that really um, is critical. Um, and I think it is still a shortfall in healthcare in general, making sure that people do that, especially with a lot of our new nursing students, travel nurses, et cetera, coming in that a lot of people aren't used to downtime. So if you have to go to paper and, you know, look at a lot of that, that's why we're seeing the impact of ransomware and whatnot being so so impactful to organizations just because of, you know, people so being so dependent on technology and never having to do it the old fashioned way. What do you have to do as a CISO? I mean, you just, it seems to me you have to think at a high level about, you know, the, the well-being and the operations, as you said, over the organization, you can't, you can't just get to the end of your defined job and stop because then you're never going to help the clinical side figure out what they have to do. And it's tricky because it's not really your job to tell the clinicians to make sure they know how to go to paper. But from my discussions, it seems like there is no one sitting above, unless this is going to be driven by a CEO or a COO um, or a chief um administrative officer, someone who sits above everything and can say, hey, guys, we all have to figure this out. Let's make a committee. So but what is the CISO's role? Do, if there's nobody above driving this, should they drive it? And how can they drive it without sort of stepping on toes and people saying, hey, whoa, you know, go play in IT and stop bothering me? But you do hit a you know a good point that a lot of BCDR, just because of the technology aspect, everybody thinks IT owns it, but IT can really only do so much. And that's really where the CISO job has also evolved into, you know, a lot of the points you said on being, needing to really be embedded into the business and clinical side of the house, because that's where you really would see the biggest impacts if there was a system interruption, but it's internal relationship building and partnership that I, you know, have a close relationship with our chief compliance officer, because that gets into compliance related issues and they need to help drive that aspect. Also your CMIO, big stakeholder and really ensuring the success of that. So that's been a focal point that we put into our GRC, which is Governance Risk and Compliance Committee um, that then filters through our audit and compliance committee that then goes up through the board. So we're trying to get that level of visibility um, to really tell that story that a lot of these organizations that you know have been hit by ransomware um, you know, you can you can invest a lot into technology people and, you know, your overall cyber program, but it's, you know, just a matter of time that, you know, somebody clicks the wrong link, et cetera, that you're going to be in that situation, you know, with our focus in IT being able to recover, but then how can we partner with the business to have that, um, you know, really work in that area of ensuring operational continuity. So that's where that, you know, the buzzword 
Uh, cyber resilience has really come into play that we know the tornadoes, the old fashioned emergency management, but really using that same mindset of like a hurricane Katrina and the impact operationally on a hospital, but to um, embed that cyber set of mind. So that's really doing tabletops, getting with those clinical stakeholders, but then, you know, really making sure that it is built into the culture of the organization, uh, but also having those key stakeholders, like you said, from, from the top down, um, that a lot of those players are members of the committee, the board's interested in this. Um, obviously, um, again, as I said, you know, making sure that we get the technology up and running as quickly as possible is, you know, really a focus of the IT side, but also really making sure that we can continue patient care, and that's training awareness, um, and then seeing, you know, working with the clinical teams to see what potential single points of failure there are and um, practicing test and repeat like they do from, you know, in the ED, if there's a, a chemical spill or a mass casualty incident. So using that same mindset of emergency management um, into cyber preparedness. So you're, if you were giving a message to your CISO colleagues and saying, hey, y- you have to be initiating these conversations with your, for example, your CMIO, you have to be discussing with them and say, hey, let me take you through a scenario. I just want to talk about it. We have a ransomware event. We have to shut down these applications. This is something that could happen. You need to know what to do when I call you and say these systems are coming offline in 30 minutes. Like I can't figure that out for you. But I want to initiate this conversation so you understand how this will go down from our end, and then you can figure out your end. Would you say you have to be doing that as a CISO? Yes. You're almost serving as the traffic cop slash moderator to bring those discussions to those stakeholders, as you said, to really make it the onus on that we can't do everything for them. For example, clinical or medical imaging that... If there's, you know, a downtime to the PAC systems, you can still walk up to the modalities, the physical devices themselves. But, you know, maybe if a provider doesn't know that, um, you know, based on where they're located, if it's a remote read, et cetera, like small things like that on having a plan, executing and making sure people are able to communicate, you know, in situations like that. That's not necessarily IT's job, but that's really on partnering with your CMIO, your uh, radiology chiefs and those to really ensure that that department um, looks at that and really looking at everything from a work stream and those interconnections, interdependencies, um, starting at the um, emergency department to the critical care units and all of that um, to see who those key stakeholders to all of them to really put that ecosystem together then enables you to work with those teams to see how those handoffs are Um, because things can be done. We've seen hospitals operate on downtime. They do on plan downtime all the time. So it's really about, you know, just making sure you Look for those gaps, wash and repeat on training. And again, you know, having those discussions, facilitating those with those, you know, key stakeholders in the in the system. I, I want it's a great plan, it's a great idea. Uh, and I want, but I wonder if you're not getting the engagement that you think you need in these conversations. You initiate these conversations, let's say. You're just not getting the engagement. You're not seeing things move forward. Uh, That would be concerning. I would imagine that's a case where you want to just make sure things are documented because after the fact, you want to be able to say, I tried. No, 100%. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's the best way. That's where audit and compliance are your best friends. Because again, people, I always use that as a targeted way to bring something 
um, you know, up to the board visibility. You know, I can say all day that this is a risk, et cetera, tying it to cybersecurity. But then if it becomes a regulatory, a compliance, an accreditation or a potential, you know, we could be sued because we're negligent and not having aspects of this together. Our cyber insurance group isn't going to cover us, you know, et cetera. And there's a lot of ways that you can have those discussions with them to help garner that discussion with those groups. Because hearing it from, you know, just the CISO alone, um, but then hearing it from another, you know, key leader like your compliance officer really helps build that and drive that within the organization. It's interesting. You mentioned your parents are providers. Are, are they physicians, uh, nurses? My mom's a respiratory therapist, uh-huh. and my dad was a uh, primary care emergency department provider. So he's actually the doctor and the um, yeah. boots on the ground from a clinical side. So. So that's very interesting. I, I'm sure it gives you, you, you know, you have a understanding of clinical care, the challenges that go on with clinical care, that no matter no matter how much another CISO will spend time in the hospital, you, you've sort of got a, a leg up on them with understanding. You know, my wife's a, a nurse practitioner, and just through her stories, I understand a little bit more about the clinical environment, certainly than I would have if I hadn't been married to her, because I just, other than when I've gone to the hospital in the ER or something, I didn't see what's going on. It helps you understand, um, I guess, how complicated it is and how busy they are. I mean, there, there isn't, there aren't hours or half hours of open time where they can attend a committee meeting, right? So when you want to get that engagement, when you want their time, you understand how much you're asking them, correct? Correct. Yeah. And I've seen that, you know, really growing up in the, the office, seeing my dad run around or even if I'm, you know, in town and see him and I'm trying to take him a sandwich for lunch. If he's running in between and, you know, badging in and out, you know, uh, using those kind of different technologies. Um, he's always been a great resource because, um, again, I've seen it firsthand, you know, talked about his woes and he still invites me to dinner now that I'm in the IT side. So um, but he's always yeah, he has always been a great resource to be like that. Like, what do you think of this or is this really something that's that impactful um, to really have that? So it's um, and I always tell my CMIO that. So I think, it, you know, it's a good um, kind of icebreaker to say that, you know, I can't do what you do, but I understand a lot of it having yeah. grown up and seeing, you know, components of that to really make it real. Um, when I'm talking to her, um, in our case, at our current organization, or CMIOs in my past, or other clinical leaders. Right. So even even saying, you know, Dad, what's the best way? I need the physicians to do this, or I need the physicians to stop doing that. What's the best way to engage with them? He probably gives you great advice. Yes. It basically says, leave them alone. <laughs> yes. Make it work. Make it work. Make it work and leave it. Leave them alone and don't disrupt their workflow. Right. Yes. Yes, we know clicks are um, precious gold on the uh, clinical side. So. Right, right, very good. Um, a high level question: What are a cup one or two of the big trends you're looking at that you think other CISOs should be uh, aware of, thinking about, maybe preparing their organizations to deal with? I think identity access management still huge. I mean, still a big gap in the industry, and it's just because healthcare is so complex. You know that we have and community connect providers. We have um, community providers. You know, we just have such a big end user base that people that need to access our systems, especially being trauma hospitals or research affiliated. There's just a wealth of data and a need for people to be able to access, especially with also legislation of information blocking. Like people understand that patients need to be able to have their information when they want it, 
when they need it. But that's going to also open up a work stream of scammers um, in a sense that they're going to, you know, spoof being, you know, Stephen Ramirez wants to have an access to his record to see X, Y, Z. And there's a potential for holding someone else's data. You know, I've seen some articles on that, that they'll say, okay, we're holding Stephen's data hostage. We have all of that information and maybe we'll leak it if it's, you know, based on your role or who you are. So it's always, you know, with any new technology, new legislation, a lot of times people don't think of the downstream security impact. Um, I know that's a subset of identity access management, but that's also getting into that zero trust model um, for um, not only people that are accessing our systems, but information we're sharing out. Like, how do we authenticate? How do we ensure that we're actually giving it to people who they say they are? And that, you know, then potentially provides an administrative burden. Um, if we're, you know, it's tough to get a lot of our patients to do two-factor authentication just for my chart. So as you can imagine, if they're coming in and requesting a record. Um, but again, as we've seen, ransomware is always related to access. A lot of that is, you know, this admin account wasn't two-factored or this hadn't you know, as a domain admin account, and it shouldn't have been, or this person left the organization 30 days ago, or it was a managed service provider. So a lot of things that we should be doing as part of Security 101, um, before we're getting these new buzzwords like zero trust, I think focusing on those fundamentals, there's still organizations that don't two-factor. You know, we should be doing some of those as a baseline, but also early detection. Um, As I said earlier, it's it's inevitable that you know a lot of organizations are going to experience a security event at some point in their tenure. Um, you know, it's something that you know us is keep us CISOs up at night. Um, so we don't generally sleep anyway. But really, on focusing um, on that, that I like to use the healthcare model since being in healthcare, that early detection, like primary care, the earlier we can detect something, like your doctor would, the earlier we can stop the spread. So using that hygiene methodology for medicine into cybersecurity is a way you can help not only educate your clinical staff, but also really preach that message internally. Um, so I'm, I've really made a focus on 10 to 15 minute um, detection times, you know, with containment and then, you know, being able to have that seamless incident response because stopping the spread, stopping the impact is really how we can really have a you know, more seamless and expedited recovery versus, you know, all systems are off, you know, we're out for multiple weeks. Um, so that's really been the key. Access and early detection, you know, really been my biggest focal point. Very good. Very good. So tell, let's talk a little bit more about, more about IAM. Um, it's not easy, right? It's not just buying a product and, and you know, you, you cut the check and we're good. We have identity and access management. Tell me what what's the rub? What's the hard part about it? It's just so complex in healthcare because you've got all of the internal. So, you know, the nurses that are charting, you know, your your pharmacist doing the medication, your radiologist, um, you know, they all need very different system access. And then, you know, with interoperability, making sure these systems talk um, and they're doing 100 things at once, as we know with COVID and even before that, that there was staffing shortages. So that's where we're seeing why phishing still is so prevalent and effective that if an account like that's compromised, look at the wealth of information and or system access they can have. But then you take that a step further, getting into IoT medical devices. That's people that have generally privileged access to be able to go onboard, offboard systems. And of course, the IT administrators that also have that privileged access to keep the lights on. Um, and then you have external access for vendors that might be monitoring, um, you know, hosted systems or maintenancing their systems, community partners. So as you can imagine, just, you know, these five or six different 
use cases and or users that we're looking at, that that gets really complex on level of access, system level access, data level access, that it just makes it very complex in tracking a lot of that. And it just also makes that attack surface so big as a healthcare organization um, on what they're able to do, that we've seen compromised just basic user accounts before that people are trying to go run scripts to, you know, inject you with malware, ransomware, et cetera, on like a Citrix hosted server. So it's a lot, it's already a, you know, monumental and Herculean effort to manage all of those um, assets and access internally, but then you throw in the external need, you know, from a research perspective, a community provider wanting to, you know, refer you and or you're referring. So as you can imagine, that whole dynamic is very, very, um, Fast moving and fluid. So again, if one thing goes wrong, you know, an account compromise, somebody uses the same password, et cetera, um, especially with remote work, if, you know, something's compromised, you know, in, in that manner, um, that it just really, really is complex. So it's really in getting into that granular level of monitoring that, you know, layering in two-factor authentication, privilege access management, um, and really just making sure you're minimizing the impact of that. And then again, partnering with the privacy team. Um, to really make sure that people are looking at what they're supposed to um, in more of a proactive manner. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of pieces that go into that. Um, that again, user anomalous activity is something that I've always put in as part mm. of that second precursor to make sure that if people are doing activity from somewhere they typically don't, you know, building some of these rules out to go out there and shut off actives. You never want to do that in a healthcare setting, but if it's something that looks like um, you know, Dr. Ramirez typically never goes to the system and he's an ED doc. Why would he be logging in from Russia or Florida, you know, out of the blue? So some, you know, really just baseline stuff on access information that can really help drive um, stopping a lot of that information. But it is very, very complex and there's a lot of great technologies out there, but technology alone won't fix the issue. So it's looking at, you know, your people understanding what they're doing within the organization, the people to manage that and understand your organization, process and procedure associated with that, how you onboard, offboard um, people into your organization based off of what they're doing. Um, We're seeing third-party risk management. Again, I mentioned that earlier. So vendor access, what are they accessing within our system? What do they need to do? Do they need an unlimited kind of access? How are we granting that access? And then offboarding. So there's a lot of good complementary then technologies to not only automate that, but if you're automating that, that's trusting the machine and or AI to do a lot of this for you. So there's a potential for giving wrong access, et cetera. So um, that really drives security assurance, making sure that um, if you automate, um, you're putting a process procedure, you're putting a policy together, that you really are aligning that assurance practice to make sure that you're um, practicing what you preach and not putting your organization at risk. Wow, there is so much there in what you just said. It's unbelievable. Um, it's interesting at a high level, uh, the, the philosophy that we're talking about, both for identity and access management and for something like network segmentation, it's all about sh- shrinking the vulnerability. So somebody gets in through a phishing um, attempt, and because you have your access management you know, tight, they can't do that much damage. Somebody breaks into a medical device because the underlying operating system can no longer be patched. They're not putting out patches anymore 
it's obsolete, but the device still works and it's worth a lot of money and we're not going to get rid of it. They get it through there. If you've got that segmented, we've minimized the damage they can do. It's all about they're going to get in. How much can they do once they get in? And to your point, the detection, I want to know when they're in as soon as possible and deal with it. So all these things work together, and I suppose they all fall under the zero trust umbrella. Correct. And it's, yeah, it's about inconveniencing a threat actor to the point that they want to do that and or limiting the damage. I love to use the use case, especially around the holiday season of, you know, Kevin McAllister and Home Alone. The what bandits or the threat actors are trying to get in, you know, he puts different traps and things into place to really keep them out. Do they still get in? Yeah, they do. But as you saw, you know, in a kind of a humorous way that they put a lot of traps externally being your perimeter to try to keep them out. And then once they're actually in your house, being inside your systems um, and that, you know, in that manner, that there's also other traps to better protect and or inconvenience them um, all while you're hoping that then the police will show up, your incident responders to be able to, you know, mitigate and get things back to normal. So just a, another way to kind of normalize it with, um, you know, a, a real life example um, to kind of make it fun in a sense. So it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, we talked about IAM is hard. It's not easy. It's a lot of work. It's very intensive. Um, and it's the same thing with net network segmentation, right? It, it, it works, but it's hard. It's not easy. It's intensive. Correct. Correct. It's expensive. It takes a lot of man hours. It takes a lot of, um, architecture design, and there's also limitations. So if I was building a new hospital tomorrow, this would be different as you're being able to build everything net new. But as you can imagine, you can't just halt all operations in a hospital as is. We have legacy devices. There's hardware refreshes. We've got hosted systems. So again, that's why healthcare is such an easier target than some of these other systems because they're able to harden their systems, harder, harden their perimeter. But our attack surface is just so much more wide and you know expansive on what you're able to go just because we have medical devices we have iot's we have people coming in a children's hospital where we have xboxes because you know you want you know kids to be able to do stuff while they're getting treatment so as you can imagine those um, intricacies and complexities also drive additional risks that we have to look at from those lens of access um, segmentation um, early detection etc is this a, a friend or a foe so that's you know almost a 24 by seven, you know, job, making sure that you're able to, to normalize that. And then a new risk can be introduced, a new technology or a log J4 of a zero day. And then it's, you know, something else, you know, popping in. So. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I, I would imagine this has happened before, but it's, it sounds so unique. The sort of the regulatory dynamic that health systems have specifically CIOs and CISOs have to operate under. You're being told at the same time, that you must protect everything, and yet you must allow all data to be fluid and move and exchange and give it to who wants it. At the same time, you're being told those two things. You'll get your hand slapped if you don't open up, and you'll get your hand slapped if, if the wrong people get the data. Correct. It is a um, <laughs> Robin Peter to pay Paul sometimes on that. So, Yeah. Challenging. Um, yes. Let's, uh, as, I, as we mentioned before, you're now working with... Um, my good friend Chuck Podesta as the CI over at Renown. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what you think are the key to CISO-CIO relationships. I assume you report to Chuck. Um, yes. 
And and we see that a lot. That seems to be sort of the predominant structure. CISOs reporting to CIOs. There are some exceptions, you know, here and there. It's done a little differently. But uh, what do you think is the key to that relationships in terms of what do you need if you are reporting to the CIO? What does the CISO need from that person to be successful? Really, to understand the broader digital um, strategy and different work streams. Because again, I personally like, I know there's always been the debate about where the CISO reports. I have a dotted line to our chief compliance officer as well. Um, but you know that that discussion has been going. I, I don't think if a CISO isn't part of IT that they will get as much truth and have a pulse on all the technology risk as much as they would if they weren't. Um, I think that's still part of, you know, strong partnerships and relationships, but a good CIO like Chuck, very security conscious. Um, and I've, I've been lucky to have two great CIOs that I've worked for um, between U of L health and Chuck um, that again, yeah, just having that level of trust, having that, that they know you're here to protect them as well, because if the CEO is going to call them first, if a system's not working, not understanding if it's, you know, X, Y, Z, and they're also, the key leader of all things technology within the hospital. We always say all things that go beep is owned by the CIO. So as my job is to protect all things that go beep. So it's really having that partnership on what your vision is, um, what their roadmap looks like, and then aligning that. Because security is part of the, it's everybody's job in the organization, not just from a technology standpoint. So it's really being that supplemental service um, to align to what the CIO's direction is, um, you know, pushing innovation, you know, looking at research, looking at all those integral discussions that they're embedding in with the business to then see how can we protect that from that access detection, um, those data sets, ensuring data movement, you know, all of those components that you've talked about that, you know, enable um, that quality, safe care. So it's, again, you know, building that level of trust, building that, you know, great relationship and, I think that all CIOs this day and age not really understand the importance of the, the CISO and their role to support them and protect the assets. Um, and I think that that relationship's gotten closer over the past, what, three to four years when we've seen oh, yeah. you know, the onset of, of ransomware. But it's been, um, if you have to educate your CIO on security, then, you know, at this day and age, um, you know, that's pretty crazy. But again, there is so much, you know, that whole ecosystem I spoke to, the CIO owning that. I think that they understand really the importance of being proactive instead of reactive on a lot of that and just, you know, intertwining that on and then them supporting you on that too. That um, again, you know, having your CISO a lot, again, this day and age of most people are going to you know, come to the table and not push back too much on that, but supporting that and then having, you know, the rest of the chiefs as well saying that if he's saying this is a risk, we need to push back. We need to, you know, as a leadership team, you know, understand and support that. So um, yeah, and and what I'm thinking is, you know, those discussions we talked about earlier, as this as the CISO goes out and tries to shore up the disaster recovery and business continuity from a high level organization wide patient safety perspective, the CIO is pro is going to have to support their CISO because that may be necessary to get some of those conversations going. Does that make sense? Yes, and I agree 100. percent So. Very good. Well, we're about out of time, Steve. Final question. Um, let me frame this up. You're speaking to someone in a CISO at a comparable sized organization. What's your best nugget piece of wisdom or advice for them as they go about trying to protect their health system? 
don't always say no to the business because you never know on an act of goodwill when that can come back to um, be needed down the road. So a lot of times, you know, the security guys are no, never answer any questions, never collaborate. So again, building that relationship with the business and, you know, being, instead of saying no, maybe to better understand that where you can compromise on a lot of that, that our job shouldn't always be no, because we're here to support the business. So to always remember that, um, that we're here again, especially in healthcare, um, that again, we need to look at process and workflow and then see how we can compromise, have a mitigating control and or, um, you know, minimizing access, et cetera. That that's always been my thing. And I think learning from um, growing up with, you know, two clinicians in the house, but also, you know, seeing um, just where other CISOs are successful. And really, again, it is that partnership and collaborating with, you know, key stakeholders. So That's perfect, Steve. Thanks so much for joining me today. I think people are going to really enjoy this. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for your time.